Good morning, everyone. So if you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you weren't here last week, then you didn't hear the introduction. So you're welcome if you would like to go online and just kind of get the background. But if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll be happy to share one with you. We're glad to have our ladies back. Around 80 of our ladies were on a women's retreat this past weekend that was very fruitful with Eddie Cole's wife as the keynote speaker in a time of building relationships and growing in the Lord. But we mentioned last week that we're introducing this new series on the Gospel of Mark. We read verse by verse through the Bible, and we want to encourage you to learn how to do that. Just take a book of the Bible and start in the beginning and start reading through. You won't understand everything. It's like watching a movie. You might have some questions, but just keep going. If you have questions, write them down, but just keep going and get to the end and then come back and sort of think it through. The Holy Spirit will teach you and will help you to learn. If you'd really like to learn more in depth about how to study the Bible, you might come and listen and join Tuesday nights. Pastor John is leading a study in the book of Micah. You can become part of a small group. There's lots of avenues for you to get involved. Go online. We have all kinds of Bible studies, study Bibles, tools to help you to grow in relationships and also in your personal time in God's Word. So we mentioned that the Gospel of Mark, all of the four authors have a lot of the same material, but they have this historical material, but they have theological concerns. And so my suggestion is that Mark was writing to Roman Christians who were being severely persecuted. All over the, the, the Eastern, Middle East, or the Middle Eastern world at this time, Christianity wasn't being persecuted. It was still in pockets, but particularly in Rome, it was severe. And so Mark is writing to encourage these Christians that, hey, you're not the only ones that are suffering, but that the way that you're going to be able to, to make it is, number one, clarifying Jesus. And so in the first verse, we saw that Mark says, this is the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And my suggestion was that the first eight chapters are to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But it doesn't stop there. It's kind of like, okay, stage one, but it's still cloudy. The second half of the book is to show that he is the Son of God who's going to suffer. And so we see this theme going through the book where the disciples don't know who he is. Who is this man? But the demons do. And at the end of the book, the centurion does. And so this morning, we're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to cover the first 20 verses, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to, to get to know Jesus, and then what should I respond? What, what, what do you want me to do about it? And that's where we talk about committing to the journey. It's not enough to have information about Jesus. Jesus is all about invitation and transformation. So let's pray together, and then we're going to start in the beginning of the book. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit will speak to us as we begin to study through the gospel of Mark. Father, I ask that you would help us to grow in the Lord and to be convicted or to be encouraged, to be fed, to be equipped. And even, Father, today we pray that some might have their eyes open to become a follower, a forgiven follower of Christ. And we depend not on, on the wisdom of the, the flesh, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. So help us to see Jesus, we pray. In his name we pray for your glory. Amen. Three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, an introduction to Jesus, and then a preparation for his ministry, and then finally, an invitation by Jesus. So let's start in the first 11 verses where Mark's going to 
introduce Jesus. Introductions are interesting. I, I can imagine you and I have all had this similar experience where you come across someone and you know you know them, but you forget their name. And you want to introduce them, but you're awkwardly trying to figure out, I don't want to say that I forget their name. And so I tried one time running into a neighbor of mine. Tammy was there, and I said, hey, oh, hey, um, this is my wife, Tammy. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. <laughs> Tammy said, if you think she fell for that. Okay, so, so what we're going to find here is that Mark shows an introduction to Jesus both by John the Baptist and then by God himself. So let's start in verse 1. We, we covered the first three verses, but we'll briefly touch on them. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel here is, is the word good news. It was used to announce the birth of one of the emperor's children. It was used to announce military victories. But in the Bible, it has a number of different meanings. In this case, it goes back to the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was written during a time when the people of God were about to be displaced because of their disobedience. So from the beginning, God created earth to reign over it, to have his kingdom on earth. <clears throat> but when sin entered, he was separated. And so it's almost like the kingdom was removed, but God began by calling Israel to institute his kingdom on earth. He, he called the Old Testament Israelites a kingdom of priests. But <clears throat> this kingdom was so messed up, there was so much disobedience that he expelled them and so the prophets predicted a time of good news in the future. So, for example, in the book of Isaiah, he said, how beautiful are the, the, the feet of him who brings good news. Say to Zion, our God reigns. And so the Old Testament saints were anticipating when will this happen? When will the good news begin that God's going to reign again on earth? And so God had given them a temporal indicator. He said, here's how you know. Before that happens, I'm going to send before you Elijah, and he's going to prepare your way. And he said in Isaiah, I'm going to send a voice crying in the wilderness to make ready the way of the Lord. So when, when Mark says here the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it's not that this is the first time God thought about it. It's, okay, action is about to happen. There's been 400 years since Malachi the prophet now the ball is going to roll very quickly. So he tells us that John is the one who will introduce Jesus. He's the messenger who will prepare the way. And we've already covered those two verses, but let's move to verse 4. It says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now, what I find remarkable about John is he never did any miracles, right? But to have a following of this proportion, a strangely dressed guy on a weird keto diet, and yet the entire population of that land was flocking to him and believing him. I mean, today, if somebody was standing on a street corner in a, in a leather outfit and eating locusts, we, we'd call 
911 and we'd have him 302'd. We'd be like, this guy's crazy. But this was a time in which God had prepared the people. They were expecting a, an Elijah to come before the coming of the Messiah. And so the Spirit of God moved upon the people. We don't even know where John was raised. What, what does it mean he appeared in the wilderness? There's a lot of mystery. It's, it's suggested that he grew up with the Essene community, if you remember hearing about the Qumran scrolls. But in any case, he comes with a simple message, repent, repent. What does that mean? <clears throat> We're going to come to Jesus' message of repentance, but, but all I want you to see here is that Mark's concern is that we see that not so much that John was preaching moralistic messages. He doesn't really focus a lot on what Jesus said when, when John baptized him, but simply this, John's introducing him. So I want you to notice how John introduces him. Verse 7, after me comes one who is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, I'm going to suggest that John didn't even know who he was talking about. John did not know who the Messiah was. Some of you may have thought, well, he must have known Jesus was the Messiah. It's his cousin. And so he probably had lots of talks with his cousin. Hey, when's my big day? Uh, I, I already sent out a save the date, and we're, I'm going to make your announcement. No, in fact, John actually tells us in the Gospel of John, I didn't even know who the Messiah was. But he said, God told me to go and baptize people. And he said, watch while you're baptizing, and he upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descending and coming upon him, then you'll know that this is the Son of God. So it wasn't until John actually baptized Jesus that he knew who he was. So in essence, he's speaking better than he knows. He's introducing somebody that he doesn't even know who it is. All he knows is the guy's in our midst. He's here. He's alive. He's going to pop out one of these days, and I'm going to point you to him. But notice what he, what he does. He, first of all, shows his great humility. You see, one of the marks of Christians is that we must decrease and Christ must increase. John models this for us. John says, look, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. But in verse 8, he mentions the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want you to be thinking about that. This is a big deal. Christians need to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have come from certain church backgrounds where you're taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is some secondary experience that you have after you're saved. It could be years later. It could be weeks later. And the way that you'll know that happened is because you're going to speak in tongues. And so some of you may have been told that, hey, it's one thing to become a Christian, but you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, I personally, and I challenge you, I want to encourage you to study the Bible. I think that's absolutely incorrect. And I'll tell you why. I believe all Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit at conversion. As soon as you become a Christian, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. He comes and indwells you and makes you a part of the body of Christ. A couple reasons I believe this. Number one, and write this down, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul said to the entire Corinthian congregation, he said, by one Spirit we are all baptized. 
You were all baptized. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, if any man does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. So I want to encourage you to understand this. You, if you're a believer, have the Holy Spirit in you. There's a lot of confusion. I just talked to someone this two weeks ago. He said, I don't have the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, what makes you think that? He says, well, I thought if I had the Holy Spirit, I would feel him. I said, well, who told you that? He said, well, no one. I just assume that. And that's the problem. We make these assumptions that aren't necessarily based on Scripture. But then he went on to say, you know, I'm really trying to turn away from sin. I want to grow in the Lord. I, I, I'm hungry to learn the Scriptures. I said, well, there's an indication that you have the Holy Spirit. These are the things that the Spirit does. So don't worry about it. Don't let people confuse you or make you feel guilty telling you you have to speak in tongues to know you're baptized by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 actually says not everyone speaks in tongues. So here's an encouraging thing for you. You have the Holy Spirit. Now keep that in mind because that's going to be your divine enablement. So let's keep going there. He introduces Jesus, but now God the Father is going to affirm that introduction. In verse 9 it says, now it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, that's where he grew up in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. I want to mention a couple things here. There's a, there's a great mystery that people have been trying to solve forever. Why was Jesus baptized? And if you talk to different Christians, some of them will say, well, he wanted to be an example to us. Others will say, well, actually, in the Old Testament, when you became a priest at the age of 30, you were actually underwent a special washing to enter the priesthood. So Jesus was showing us that he was now beginning his priestly ministry. The problem is, when John the Baptist said, I can't baptize you because you're, you're too righteous, right? Jesus said this, let's do this because this fulfills all righteousness. So if you were to ask me, why did Jesus get baptized? He said, it's to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? really kind of hard to say. No one's really said it conclusively, but I want to clarify a couple things. Jesus was not baptized because he was a sinner, okay? So his baptism was different from Christian baptism. Jesus didn't get into the water like the rest of them confessing their sins. The Bible tells us he knew no sin. So this was God's affirmation that this is my son. And what's interesting is, those of you that are reading the Gospels, there's only a couple times in the life of Jesus that the Father speaks from heaven. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Father spoke from heaven, and people thought a, a voice thundered. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured, and the Father said, this is my son, listen to him. So this is God's way of introducing people like, hey, you need to listen to this guy. This is my beloved son. So, so the big picture here is simply this. Mark is introducing us that Jesus is the son of God and that he's here 
to bring the gospel message in the kingdom of God. So now let's look at Jesus' preparation. This is a really interesting passage because the other synoptics go into great detail about the temptation of Jesus. If you want to read something really interesting, Tim Keller has a book called Encounters with Jesus. And he has a a little chapter on the temptation of Jesus. It's fascinating. But those of you who are familiar with the baptism and then the temptation of Jesus realize that in the other Gospels, there's a great deal of detail. There's three separate temptations. Jesus answers those three things with Scripture. People compare those three things to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Mark's not concerned about that. So why did the Holy Spirit lead Mark to write what he did? Now let's look at what he says. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now we would have thought this would be an ideal time for a a celebration. Jesus just came out. He just began his ministry. The Father endorsed him. This could have been a great press conference in which he signed autographs and, and, and mingled with the crowd. But instead, he's immediately taken to a place of difficulty, a place of opposition. Notice it says he was impelled. He was, this is a strong word. He was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So the first thing I want you to understand here is I think Mark is preparing us because of the Romans that following Christ, you will encounter opposition. The other gospels just say, he's tempted by the devil. Mark names him Satan, the great adversary of God. And so as Jesus encounters this opposition, It says he was with the wild beasts. Now, why the National Geographic background? What kind of beasts are in the wilderness? Were they lions, tigers, or bears? Actually, many commentaries have suggested that Mark is in a nuanced way hinting at something that's going on among the Romans. We do know from church history that one of the ways that Nero was torturing Christians is that he would wrap them in animal skins and feed them to wild beasts. So I think if I was a first century Roman, fearful that that could happen to me, I would find this incredibly encouraging. Hey, my savior was already with the wild beasts. I'm not the first one to encounter wild beasts. But then you'll notice something that none of the other gospels have, and that is this. It says, the angels were ministering to him. Was Jesus cheating on his diet? I mean, didn't it say in the other Gospels he had 40 days without food? Were they slipping him some angel food cake? What does this mean? (laughs) And while we don't know for sure exactly what it means, I think we can say this, and that is that Jesus was receiving divine enablement. He was receiving divine enablement, and I think that's important for us as Christians to understand because once you get in the game, some of you aren't in the game yet, but once you get in the game and and, and God brings you to himself, you realize that this isn't easy, that there's a reason why the Christian life is frequently portrayed as a fight, as a conflict, as a battle, 
And we learn early on as Christians that we are no match for this battle unless we're sustained by divine enablement. And so I want you to note that Mark is is holding forth to his Christian brothers who are suffering. Hey, I get it. I get it. You're facing opposition. So did your Savior. But bear in mind that in that opposition, you can be sustained by divine enablement. And so this is a theme that we can read about in the history of the church, that Christians have been severely persecuted, but they learned early on from the Bible to depend on God in prayer to depend on God's Holy Spirit to empower and enable them to not cave. Perhaps one of the most beautiful representations of this is if you remember the story of Martin Luther, when he was being persecuted by the Catholic Church, when he was translating the Bible into German, when they told him, don't do that, and while he was in that Wittenberg Castle translating, somewhere during that time he was led to to write a hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I wonder if he had passages like this in mind when he said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. And so he went on and he reminded the church that the spirit and the gifts are ours. You see, opposition, but then let's sing of our divine enablement. So this morning, I want you to think about maybe the opposition that you're experiencing. If you're a Christian, Satan's gonna tempt you every which way. He's clever. The Bible says he has many schemes. Sometimes he'll come in the front door with just flat-out persecution. Other times he'll lure you from the side with just temptations to lose your way and get caught up in the things of this world like Ellen shared, just not bringing forth fruit. Sometimes he'll work in and through your spouse, though I forbid you to ever say to your spouse, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is allowed to do that. You're not. But it is true that Satan can use believers even and unbelievers. And so I need to be watchful. And I want to encourage you to think about how important it is to recognize even at Christ's temptations that our wonderful Savior resisted this satanic opposition, but he did it with divine enablement. Now, the last thing we want to look at real briefly is Jesus' invitations. Okay, there's going to be two invitations that Jesus is going to give here. Look at verse 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, again, don't miss that. Come on, why do we... The other Gospels don't get to that so early. Why, are we, why do we have to talk about John being arrested, of which Mark is going to give great detail about that in chapter 6? Because he's writing to people who are being arrested, who are being fed to wild beasts. Again, you're not alone in this. So after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Two things I want you to see from verse 15. Number one, that the gospel is a, is, is a content of information, right? But it's invitation that then is followed, or information that is followed by an invitation, okay? It's not just an a, a, a information drop. Hey, I want to tell you a couple of things, okay? So when the Bible uses the phrase the gospel, this is a rich term that has 
a number of nuances. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says, an angel will fly in the mid-heavens preaching the eternal gospel. Now, we know ultimately that the heart and soul, the center of the gospel, is that Christ died and rose again. But at this point, the gospel was a message that concerned the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. So at that time, in their mind, the kingdom of God was when God was going to establish his reign on earth through his Messiah. In their mind, the primary evidence of that is this Messiah, son of David, is going to raise up his sword and he's going to kick some Roman butt and he's going to overthrow the Romans and we're suddenly going to have this worldwide reign of God through his Messiah. And Jesus is like, well, we're going to talk about that quite a bit. I'm going to have to teach parables to explain the kingdom. But initially, let me say three things. God has an eternal kingdom. The Bible says the Lord sits at king forever. But when Jesus came to earth, he introduced an aspect of the kingdom of God that was not present before that. At that point, Jesus began to develop his kingdom in a new way. And right now, on earth, God is advancing a present aspect of his kingdom. Either you're in or you're out. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, God translates you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. The problem is we're still in enemy territory. I would love to say that when you become a Christian, you sail right into the celestial kingdom. So remember this, though, that if you're a Christian, you are now part of the kingdom of God on earth. We're the minority. We're behind enemy lines. But every time someone gets saved, we're advancing the kingdom. This is what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, and these other things will be added to you. What are you doing to advance God's kingdom, to build his church, and to reach lost people? That's where Christ's passion is. Now, with that in mind, there's also a future aspect. When the Lord returns, then he will establish the fullness of his kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? So if you're expecting your payoff and your pleasures and all in this life might never happen. Don't worry about this life. Think about the life to come. And you say, you probably should be asking this question. Am I going to be in the kingdom of God? If you've never asked yourself that question, you need to ask that. Am I going to be in the kingdom of God? Jesus said a number of things about that. He said, unless you're converted, you won't enter the kingdom. Unless a man is born again, he won't enter the kingdom. He said, when the Son of Man comes back on earth, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, and he's going to say to the sheep, enter into the kingdom, and to the goats, depart from me. So there's nothing more important than that you know that you are a part of God's kingdom. And that relates to Jesus' invitation. After the information, he says, repent and believe the gospel. It's really important that we understand that, okay? Especially those of you that teach children. To simply say to your child, ask Jesus in your heart, okay? That's really not a clear explanation of how to respond to the gospel message. So these two words, repent and believe the gospel, are incredibly important. Every Christian needs to understand this. Okay, so when you're reading the Bible, sometimes it'll say this, repent, that's all it'll say, repent for the forgiveness of sins. 
Other times, all it'll say is believe. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, believe. But here we see an example of them both used together. Repent and believe. What I want you to understand is this is one decision, but there's two sides to it. It's a willingness to turn from something and a willingness to turn and trust someone. And so repentance is simply a change of mind, a willingness to turn from whatever is keeping you from Christ. It might be your pride. It might be your self-righteousness. It might be some delightful sin that you don't want to give up. But anything that is keeping you from turning to Christ, you need to repent. Some people need to repent of being religious sinners. I'm a really good person, and I think God should let me into heaven. You need to change your mind about that. You're not a good person, but Christ died for you. Others of you need to repent of being non-religious sinners. I could care less what God thinks, but today I'm awakened, and I'm willing to turn to Christ. Repentance is not works. Repentance is a decision. Later, the Bible says you bring forth fruit. But repentance in and of itself will not save you. It has to be a repentant faith. And that is you're turning from something to someone. So when the Bible says believe the gospel, what does it mean to believe? It means to fully trust and rely upon someone. It's not just, I don't believe in Santa, I do believe in Christ. But it's a decision to say, I am turning from anything that's keeping me from God and I am trusting that Jesus, the Son of God, shed his blood, and that's all I need to be saved, and I am embracing him by faith. It is a simple act of faith. I trust in Christ, the crucified, risen Savior. Have you done that? If you have not done that, if you go, oh, you know, I don't really know, well, then seal the deal. Let your soul find no rest until you go, I want to be right with Christ. We'll help you. Come and talk to us. But the last invitation that Christ gave was then to the disciples. He went on and he said, follow me. You see, it's not enough simply to make a decision and to become saved. As Ellen said, it's not just hell insurance. There's then a calling for us who are believers. Follow me, he said, and then I'll make you fishers of men. You see, all of us who are believers, we're on our way to heaven. But during this little time on earth, it's not about us. It's about reaching out to a fallen world. It's about reaching our kids, our loved ones, our neighbors, our enemies, and fishing for men, and trying to live our lives in a way that honors Christ and draws people to himself. And I am so thankful that many of you are doing that. And, and this is what our mission is. Go and make disciples. And so let's continue to pray. Come back and join us as we pray tonight that our church during our short time on earth will reach many for Christ, make many disciples, send out many followers of Christ. But this morning, let's praise God for this baptism, praise God for Jesus, and then either make a decision to follow Christ and win souls or make a decision to repent and believe. If you have questions, we'd love to talk to you. Look around afterward, introduce yourself to someone. We're really happy you're here and looking forward to what God's doing. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Father, I just want to pray because I know that many times I experience opposition from the evil one. But I'm so thankful that you give us divine enablement. As we draw together in prayer, we can find strength from the Lord. The angels minister to us and you give us victory. Bring us back tonight, Lord, where 
where we do truly call upon the Lord for divine enablement. We need you so badly, Lord, and we want your power to be unleashed in our church. So encourage those who are hurting. Encourage those who are in opposition today. Strengthen the weak. Strengthen those who are doubting and bring many people into a saving relationship with Christ. And all these things we pray for God's glory, especially for those who were baptized, that they will be strong and full of joy and that you will use them to bring others to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.